Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today. My name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis, and if we haven't met yet, we should. I, um, I go back and forth most every week between Noblesville, our, our Noblesville campus, and our Carmel campus, and uh, good to spend some time with you here this morning. And last week, we told you about how we were able to provide breakfast and a gift card uh, to every staff member at two Noblesville and two Carmel schools as a result of your giving through Greater. And I'm excited to announce a second gift today uh, to ICF Church in Albania. And ICF is a, a church that we've been supporting for a number of years now. I first went back to, I went to Albania back in 2015. A pastor friend of mine uh, called me from Chicago and said, hey, you want to go to Albania with me? And I said, well, hold on a second, because I had to Google where's Albania, all right? I was pretty sure I needed to check that out first, but uh, went over and met Altin and Ada Kitta, got a picture of them here. They uh, pastor the church uh, in Albania. And then in the winter of 2015, some of you, uh, or excuse me, in the fall of that same year, some of you, uh, Kathy, I, I see Kathy out there was on that trip, and some others for Genesis, we went back, and we were able to serve in, in different ways there at ICF, and to learn a little bit more about their ministry. Um, just to give you some background, ICF Church is about 10 years old now. Uh, they serve in a country that's predominantly Muslim. Uh, they have baptized over 200 people, mainly youth. Uh, in the last 10 years, they serve over 150 families annually with a ministry to children and teens uh, with special needs. And this is really crazy. In, in the past 10 years, they have helped start over 100 churches in and around Albania, including four during in the last 18 months of COVID, which is just pretty spectacular. But uh, here's the thing. They need a new facility. They are, have outgrown the space where they meet. And some of you will remember that when we started Greater uh, two, two years ago, we said that a portion of the money received was going to go to help ICF Church find a new location. That if we're going to do some facility stuff here, if we're going to help our Noblesville campus find a location, we're going to help uh, ICF and Albania find a new location. So guess what? Uh, because of your giving, we are ready to present ICF Church with a gift of $50,000 uh, to help them find a new home. And so they haven't found one just yet, uh, but they're looking diligently. And uh, here's my good friend, Altine, with just a thank you for Genesis this morning. Check this out. Thank you so much for helping us uh, to find a new building. Actually, we have been looking for a new place and your help, your involvement it's a great sign that God is in our favor and he'll help us to find a new place, a new home for our church. Thank you so much. We love you guys and Merry Christmas. Isn't that cool? We just join me in kind of celebrating what we get to be a part of. Like it's so great to think how, how God's going to use your generosity, the generosity of this church to, to bless this congregation in Albania. And uh, man, God's favor is just upon them and their ministry and the people that are coming to the Lord there. And we get to play a small part of it. And so thank you. Thanks for your giving. Like we wouldn't be able to do this uh, without your faithful support. So we just join me. Let's pray for ICF Church and, and, and for our time here this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for Altine and Ada and for ICF Church. 
church. I pray that you, I thank you that you brought them into my life and uh, into many uh, of our lives as we've had people that have traveled there now with us. And uh, thank you that we get to be a part of the work there. And uh, we love, Lord, how you are bringing people back to yourself uh, through this ministry and how they're growing and bearing fruit. I know that the last 18 months have been incredibly difficult for them as well, but you've been faithful and you're providing for their needs. And uh, God, you know they need a new space and we believe you've got a new space for them in mind. And I pray that our financial gift now uh, would enable them to pursue and to take great steps towards whatever it is uh, that you have for ICF. And so, Father, we pray that you would lead them. We pray that you'd provide. And uh, thank you again that we get to be a part of this. And uh, Lord, we invite you into this time this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that you would speak through me and give me strength, give strength to my words this morning. Uh, But open up our hearts, Lord, to help us see who Jesus is. And, uh, you know, as we think about Christmas, uh, that our focus would be on him and what he's accomplished for us and what he can do in our lives. Even today, we offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to make another big announcement next week, so you need to be back uh, for that. It's going to be a really special one, so don't miss it. But uh, turn to 1 John this morning if you've got a Bible. Uh, In the New Testament, 1 John, it's uh, towards the end of your Bible. It's one of three letters written to Christians living in the first century world, and it's widely believed that the Apostle John... Uh, one of those that was very close to Jesus, that he is the writer of this particular letter. And following Jesus' ascension into heaven, uh, John eventually made his way to Asia Minor, or what we know today as Turkey, where he lived well into his 80s. In fact, he's the only one of Jesus' original apostles not martyred for his faith. And so John lived a long, fruitful life, and, and late in his life, he served as a missionary and an encourager to the churches in this particular area of the world. And boy, did they need some encouragement. Uh, Life was hard for Christians living in the Roman Empire. They were uh, repeatedly oppressed uh, by the Roman leaders because of their faith, because of their their Jewish background and beliefs. They were also looked down on by the Jewish uh, people who saw them as heretics, uh, even within their own churches. There were disagreements over important matters which caused divisions and and broken relationships with people that they used to call their friends. There was uh, plenty of economic chaos throughout the Roman world. And add to it, people were confused by a civilization that really didn't have any sort of a moral compass. The, The nuclear family was falling apart. Divorces were increasing. Orphans roamed the street. Sexuality had no boundaries whatsoever. I mean, the first century world was this messed up, confusing, uh, worn out, weary sort of a world. There's no chance at all any of us could relate to that, right? I mean, we, we, we don't have anything in common with what was going on in the first century wrong. Man, scroll through your news feed. Uh, we are daily bombarded uh, with doom and gloom sort of news. I mean, the, the pandemic that we all thought was just going to last a few weeks looks more and more like this is our new reality. Um, economic woes are, are high. Uh, they're here. Prices are up. Shortages everywhere. Um, another school shooting causes you to question whether you should ever send your kids out the door again. Uh, what many of us call moral values seem to be a thing of the past. And don't look now, but 2022 is an election year. How exciting, right? I mean, something to look forward to. But no, seriously, our world looks eerily similar to what Christians in the first century face, this this worn out, confusing, weary world. And and for some of you, uh, that word weary probably hits you in a really personal way. 
because maybe you'd say, you know what, I'm, I'm weary from fighting for my marriage all the time. Um, I'm weary from never having enough money to get through another month. I'm weary from uh, the chronic pain or, or the cancer. I'm weary from the loss of somebody that I love deeply. Uh, maybe you're weary from the loneliness and the dread of spending another Christmas alone, weary from the busyness, weary from regrets from the past years or fear over the future. Maybe you're weary from a friendship that you've lost. Parents, maybe you're weary from another day of trying to figure out what in the world to do with Elf on the Shelf. Like, like you know, I mean, just another day of trying to figure out where that little guy goes or... Or, yeah, well, he takes care of himself, right, for the kids that are in the room. But we live, we live in this weary world, okay? And, and I don't know why, and maybe it's just the winter, although I know some of you are crazy enough to think that the winter is splendid and all, but why is it that the Christmas season tends to magnify some of the pain, some of the brokenness, some of the hurt and challenges of life, uh, especially for Christians, I remember one of the first Christmases that Jenny and I were married. I think it was our second Christmas, actually. And we had to spend the day all alone. We were living in Anderson, Indiana at the time. Jenny was a nurse. She was working second shift as a nurse, again, at the, at the local hospital. And so we had to be in Anderson by ourselves on Christmas Day. And it wasn't a lot of fun. Like, I remember we woke up that morning and just something didn't feel right. I mean, our, our families were all together and doing what they normally do on Christmas. And, and so we kind of got up and we tried to make the best of it. And we said, well, let, let's go out to lunch or something. There's not much open on Christmas Day. Have you ever been out trying to look for a place to eat on Christmas Day? Except for the Chinese restaurant, right? And so we ended up, I mean, just like the, the, the movie, we ended up at a Chinese buffet in Anderson on Christmas Day feeling sorry for ourselves. And I can remember we were just sitting there again trying to make the best of it. But I'll still remember, I'll always remember this picture in my mind of looking over to another corner of the restaurant and there was a man sitting there all by himself eating lunch that day. And it kind of broke my heart, you know, of just wondering what his story was and why is he there all alone. And, and, and it took me a while, but the Lord even used that moment to give me some perspective of, well, at least I, I had my wife, you know, we were enjoying this time together again, trying to make the best of it. I mean, I was reminded that I've got Christ in my life though, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's okay to hurt. It's okay to long for these other things that we enjoy, but, but I, I have something greater, you know, I have, I have Christ in my life. If we're not careful, here's what I'm trying to say. There, there's a chance that we miss out or that we'll miss out on what's most important. Like the, the challenges and circumstances of life, even the busyness of life have the potential to rob us of a gift that God offers to all people. And what's that gift? That gift is that 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us, to redeem us, to give us the hope to keep living, to keep believing, to keep trusting and shining for him. And that's why John writes to these Christians living in the ancient world. Like John knew these truths. He, he was one of the rare people who had spent time with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. And because of that, he watched how Jesus loved people and cared for people. He saw the miracle. I mean, there were so many highs that they got to experience together. But John also went through many of the tough times uh, that Jesus and his disciples would have experienced, especially as they were moving from place to place, trying to keep away from Jesus' enemies. I mean, John was there when Jesus hung on the cross. I mean, he watched Jesus suffer. He watched Jesus die, but then, but then he saw Jesus come alive again too. 
And he saw firsthand the hope that Jesus can bring to a weary world. And that's why John writes to these Christians living in the ancient world and why his words that were so true then are still true for us today. And make no mistake, I mean, these first few passages of this book that we're going to look at are some of the most profound Christmas passages in the Bible. Now, as we look at them this morning, you might think to yourself, Christmas? I don't see a lot of Christmas in this. Like there's nothing in these words about angels or about Bethlehem or about shepherds, anything like that. And if you notice that, you'd be right. Okay, that's true. But this passage, while it doesn't refer to the kind of traditional elements of Christmas, what this passage does tell us is what the events of Christmas mean. And that's very important because all of the hope that we've ever wanted or gone looking for are found in the promises of Christmas. All right, so let's check this out. First John chapter one, I'll look at just a few verses with you today, but let's read them. Let me read them for you. First John chapter one, verse one, the disciple, the apostle John writes this, that which was from the beginning, which if you know your Bibles at all is an interesting connected back to John 1, 1. All right, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. He's making a connection even to the book of Genesis. But that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, scholars believe that John was writing this letter likely from Ephesus around AD 90. And just some quick history, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and Christians had been scattered around AD 70, so 20 years prior. So, so John's words are going out to Christian refugees that have been scattered around this part of the world. They're living as foreigners and as strangers. And trust me, John's not overlooking their pain, all right? He's not being insensitive to the challenges of life and the disruptions and all of the circumstances. I mean, he knew the struggles and the suffering that these people had endured, but he writes to these Christians to encourage them and to make sure they're keeping their eyes on what's most important, all right, and what matters most. And he reminds them saying, again, we have heard him, notice the words, we have seen him, we have touched him. And as you read these words, I mean, can't you just picture John at a witness stand in a courtroom, like giving testimony to what he's experienced? I mean, it's almost as if you can hear him shouting, he's for real, John says, like, the birth of Jesus is real. It really happened. Like, God came to earth in the person of Jesus. Like, Christmas is not just some nostalgic, made-up sort of story. It really happened. And I don't know how you see it or what kind of questions you have about Jesus or what kind of study you've done of him, but whether you realize this or not, there's virtually zero debate anymore about the fact that Jesus was a real historical figure who lived in the first century. I mean, even if you don't believe the Bible, you should know that some very famous uh, and trusted historians, people like Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Elder, reference Jesus in their historical writings, and there is little dispute, all right, with the facts that have been set forth in the Gospels. All right, and you may remember in the book of Acts, all right, if you remember when we read there a, a month or so ago, uh, when John was put in jail by by Jesus' enemies along with his friend Peter for teaching about the resurrected Jesus. And they're brought before the Sanhedrin or the ruling council of the Jews. And the Sanhedrin warned them, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Like we want you to stop preaching about Jesus. But Peter and John reply, like we can't. Like we can't stop talking 
about what we have seen with our own eyes and what we've heard. And so John basically says, like, we don't, we don't believe this. We, we didn't believe this because we thought that Christianity is a superior way to live or something or that it makes the most sense to us. No, we, we are practicing it. We are living it out because we saw the resurrected Jesus with our own eyes. It's, it's like John is just basically saying this, that Jesus is real. He's saying he is, he is real. We spent time with him. We have seen him with our own eyes. We have, we have watched him. We have, we've heard him. What about you? Do you believe it? Can you embrace this? Do you embrace this truth with your life? Like, will you choose to believe it? Will you choose to allow it to, to, to brighten your, you know, your Christmas, to, to get you thinking about the right things, you know, th- this time of year? And, and when you think about like, a, you know, Jesus is real to some of you, you know, like, you know, yes, I do. I, I do believe this. You know, I get sidetracked at time and life happens and, and I kind of get off course, but I do believe it. Some of you are like, I, I want to but there's so much hurt in my life. I've, I've still got so many questions. And to some of you, you'd say, you know, I, I want to, but I don't know how. Like, I don't know how to get there. Like, I don't know how to cross that line. There's just so many things that I still wonder about. I find it hard to believe. I, I found this to be a really cool illustration. I'm gonna do the best I can to explain it to you, hopefully in a way that you'd understand. And uh, any baseball fans in the room? I, I know we're in December right now, and all right, I'm a baseball fan too. And unfortunately, baseball's on lockdown right now. It's another topic for another day. But uh, this is kind of interesting. Yale physicist uh, Robert Adair studied the science behind hitting a major league fastball, and he published it in a book called The Physics of Baseball. And here's one of the things that he found, okay? A 90 mile per hour fastball travels the 60 feet, six inches from the pitcher's mound, all right, to the plate, all right, in 400 milliseconds, okay? That's a little less than half a second. And, and, and he figured out that it takes the brain, all right, if you're standing in the batter's box, 200 milliseconds to find the ball in the air as it's released from the pitcher's hand and is traveling to the plate, all right? And, and to get that image for the batter, to get that image in his brain and decide whether or not to swing, all right? 200 milliseconds. So half the time the ball is in the air, the batter is simply trying to decide what to do. Well, if the batter decides to swing, the brain spends another 100 milliseconds all right, deciding whether to swing the bat high, to swing the bat low, to swing the bat inside, or to swing the bat outside the strike zone. If you're keeping tabs, then you're down to three, you're, that's 300 milliseconds already, all right, before you've ever swung. And here's where it gets really interesting. The swing itself, according to Adair, takes 150 milliseconds. During the first 50, the batter can stop the swing, but beyond 50 milliseconds, the bat is moving at 70% of its final speed and can't be stopped. So put all this together, 200 milliseconds locating the ball, 100 milliseconds making a decision, and 150 milliseconds to swing the bat. That's 450 milliseconds total. The problem, well, the ball is in the catcher's glove after 400 milliseconds. So Adair concludes that according to the law of physics, hitting a 90 mile per hour fastball is impossible. All right. Now, how many of you agree with his conclusion? 
all right? Hopefully none of you. And why? All right, because you've seen it. If you've watched baseball on TV before, all right, you've seen it happen. And not only have you seen a guy hit a 90 mile per hour fastball, but you've likely seen a guy hit a 100 mile per hour fastball. And so if 90 mile per hour is impossible, what about 100 miles per hour? All right, I, I can't explain the facts, all right, but I can't deny, you and I can't deny what we've seen. What's the Apostle John saying? That when it comes to Jesus, this is not a theory that we've accepted because we can explain every detail of it. No, we believe this because Jesus rose from the dead. John says, I saw it with my own eyes. We touched him. We felt the wounds in his body after the resurrection. Again, John proclaims Jesus is real. All right, his life, his death, and his resurrection really happened. What will it take for you to believe? You know, what will it take for you to believe? Because today you're surrounded by a room full of people whose lives have been changed forever by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and I can't promise you that believing in Jesus is going to make everything perfect and wonderful and magnificent in your life, but it is a truth, all right, that can help us no matter what we go through, and it's certainly a truth that's a big deal for our future uh, as individuals as well. And so Jesus is real. His birth happened all right, Christmas changes everything, all right? This is the reason why we have hope. Look what he says in verse two. He says, the life appeared. He's talking about Jesus now. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, the word translated life here is the Greek word zoe, uh, and a more complete translation of the word is just simply this, that zoe means life, all right, but it's more than just life. It's a real and genuine life. It's a life active and vigorous. It's a life devoted to God, blessed in the portion, even in this world of those who put their trust in Christ, but after the resurrection to be consummated by new accessions, among them a more perfect body and to last forever. John just basically says this life, all right, this kind of life it is a life that Jesus offers to us, all right? It's the, the life that appeared in person through Jesus. Notice that John doesn't say that Jesus has life or that he gives life, but he says that he is life, all right? Eternal life. John's aim here is to announce that Jesus is the one from which eternal life flows. And what does that mean? Well, pastor and writer Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, in every other religion, the founder is a prophet or a sage, and the founder says, here's the way for you to find eternal life. Do this, do this, do this, and you will be saved. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, John chapter 14, verse 6. Christianity does not say Jesus is a great prophet pointing to the way, or the way to God and how we can save ourselves. No, Jesus Christ, according to Christmas, is God come to save us and to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. To know him is eternal life. What does John declare? John declares this that Jesus is for real, and he declares that Jesus is life. Jesus is life for us. And why does this matter? Well, this matters because, because the way that God created us, it just means that we go looking all the time, every day, and everything that we do. 
Uh, for, we, we go looking for meaning, like we go looking for significance and purpose and all these different things. Like we go looking for meaning and satisfaction and things like work and money and sports and achievements and busyness. And then our world gets turned upside down and all of a sudden some of those things are maybe taken away or held back from us in some way, shape or form. And when that happens, it hurts, right? It hurts. And now don't get me wrong, it's okay to hurt. I'm not saying that we can't hurt. Like there's nothing wrong in enjoying what you enjoy. In fact, God finds joy in most everything that you and I find joy in. But when we make the things of this world, all right, other things, the ultimate thing in our life and they don't satisfy or they're taken away from us, it can almost feel like our world, world has fallen apart or that it's almost not worth living. But when Jesus is your life, when Jesus is your life and you begin finding your satisfaction in him, he's the only one that can provide, that can offer us what we truly need. And here's why this is so good. If you're tired of trying to measure up in this world, all right, measure up to other people's standards. If you're weary of trying to prove yourself over and over again, if you're exhausted, you know, again, from trying to be good enough, here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, you're off the hook, all right? Jesus means that someone came to do for you and me what we can't do for ourselves. Christmas means that you're saved by grace, all right? That you, you don't have to earn it, that you don't have to uh, earn God's grace in this world, but life is yours simply by accepting that Jesus was given for you, that Jesus came at Christmas. It is the gift of Jesus. Like he is our gift of life from God. He is for real. John says, Jesus is life. And then he continues in verse three by saying, we proclaim to you, again, what we have seen and heard. I mean, he's almost on repeat here. So that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus came that very first Christmas so that he could be in relationship, that he could be in fellowship with us. And that was, that's what makes him special. All right, that's what makes him so special because God isn't content to be a, a concept to be believed or just a powerful force to be worshiped. No, God became human so that he could come close to us and be someone we could relate to, someone that we could experience intimacy with. You know, um, here real soon, a new Spider-Man movie comes out. Any Marvel fans in the room? We got some Marvel fans in the room, right? Okay, I appreciate a good Marvel movie. And we love these movies for a number of different reasons. My friend was telling me about uh, Marvel creator Stan Lee. Uh, if you don't know who Stan Lee is, he's the creator, co-creator of, of characters like Captain America and Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk. And he passed away in 2018. But until that point, one of the things that made him unique was that he had a cameo appearance uh, in over 40 movies, including every Marvel movie from the first X-Men all the way up to Avengers Endgame. But, but Stan Lee wasn't the first writer or filmmaker to, or excuse me, the first writer to appear in his own films. If you're, a, if you're a film buff or if you like old movies at all, you've probably seen more than one Alfred Hitchcock uh, film. And if you're a fan of his, you know that Hitchcock made it a habit to write himself into many of his stories as well. In fact, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the actor, made a cameo in most of his own movies. And near the end of his career, he, he talked about it a little bit. 
Uh, he said this, he said, I wormed my way into my own pictures as a spy. He says, a director should see how the other half lives. And, and one movie critic said this about Hitchcock's appearances. He says, uh, they create a special bond between the filmmaker and viewer because through his cameo, Hitchcock becomes an ambassador between you and the world he created. But listen to what else he says uh, that is true about Hitchcock. Fam famous, uh, or excuse me, filmmaker Michael Walker notes that most of Hitchcock's appearances happen during scene transitions. And he says this, the Hitchcock cameo is an omen warning us that something significant is about to happen. The cameo marks a narrative threshold, which once crossed by the character can't be undone. Here's the point. In the same way, Christmas means that the one who created all things, the one who loves us, all right, wrote himself into our story. All right, and he did that so that he could become like one of us. He did that so he could better understand. And he came because he wants, he desires to have a relationship with you and with me. And he became the remedy for sin for us. And he wants us to know that uh, he loves us, uh, that he is love. And in fact, he's called us to do that for one another. John's going to go on later to write later on in his first letter in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that we love because he first loved us. He first loved us. He is love. He demonstrated love. And so we love because of what he did. That's why we're giving away money through greater. Uh, we believe that God is love, that he is the provider of all things, and that he's using Genesis as, a, as an instrument to demonstrate love to others. That's why we're making updates here to our Carmel campus, all right? We want this to be a place, one more place, where we can demonstrate the love of Christ to the community to which God has called us. It's why we're looking for a new home for our Noblesville campus, because we want to help even more find their way back to God. That's why we're taking a Christmas offering. All right, and we'll talk about this more at the end of the service. Jerry will in just a moment. We're going to do this in a couple of weeks. But uh, with this Christmas offering, we're going to give all of that money away to ministry partners, you know, that are seeking to, to demonstrate, to, to be conduits of that love of Jesus for others. We do it because Jesus is love. He demonstrated his love for us by coming to the earth and giving his life. And so John says this about Jesus and about Christmas. Again, he says that Jesus is real. Jesus is life. All right, we know and believe that Jesus is love. Why did John feel like it was so important to write these words to believers? Well, in verse four, he said this. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. Or check this out in the New Living Translation as well. Uh, we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Basically, here's what John wants us to see again, that Jesus is our joy. All right, Jesus is the joy we want. He, he, he wants us to realize that the joy of embracing the birth of Jesus, the joy of knowing Christ and trusting him with your life and salvation is greater than all things. When we think about Christmas, all right, this is what we need to point back to, the unmistakable, irreplaceable joy that comes to us in Jesus Christ. And again, John's not trying to be insensitive to the circumstances, you know, of the people listening then and certainly of you and I today, what we might be going through. He's not saying that life shouldn't be hard or that you and I are never going to go through discouraging times, but 
It doesn't, it doesn't and shouldn't change the hope that we have that no matter what happens in this world, the story's not changing. All right, God's not nervous. He's, he's not in heaven right now working on some backup plan, you know, for things that have gone terribly wrong in this world. The plan has always been Jesus and, and he is our hope and he is all of the joy that we would ever, ever need and have ever gone looking for. Like Jesus, he is the hope and the joy that can help us in the pain of a broken relationship. He is the hope that can help us overcome our anxiety. Like Jesus is the hope that can help us in our financial worries. Jesus is the hope that can help us be hope for others. And he is the hope that can lead us through the uncertainties of this world. As we draw closer to Christmas, I I want to remind you that you have a choice for how to approach it. Like you can choose to focus on the circumstances of this life, all right? You can, you can choose to focus on the circumstance of this life, you know? You can choose to focus on those things that you and I can't necessarily change. Or you can choose to find or to focus your attitude on Christ and find joy in Him. And when you wake up each morning, instead of letting the weariness of the world rush in, you know, you focus on the reason that you have joy. We're going to close together here. Uh, the band's going to come out uh, by singing one of my favorite Christmas songs and what I think is probably one of the best Christmas songs ever written, and that's the song, O Holy Night. And uh, this song has some powerful words and lyrics in it uh, that remind us of the whole reason for this Christmas. But I want to point out this one small paragraph to you that we're going to sing in just a moment. When the writer says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We live in a weary world, right? It is. And you may have a legitimate reason for your own personal weariness right now, but be encouraged. Jesus is real. He is life. He is our joy and our hope. And because he came to earth and he's alive today, we as followers of Jesus can rejoice even in our weariness. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the hope and the life that we have through your son, Jesus Christ that you came, Lord, that you came and you were in this world, that you show us how to live, that you can relate in ways that we will never fully understand and that you gave your your son who gave his life so that in him we could have life. Father, we thank you. And I pray that maybe today that you would just use this moment to kind of refocus our minds and our hearts on you and what it is that Jesus means for us. Have your way in us today. Have your way in this place, even as we sing together right now. Our hope is in you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.